If you like this show and other podcasts from Slate, we're looking for a little bit of feedback from listeners like you. We have a brief survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Thanks so much for listening to our show. There was a commercial a few years ago that it just, it, it made like steam come out of my ears. This is Erica Nicole Kendall, and she's talking about an ad for Weight Watchers. You know it, eat a snack. It if was like, well, if you're sad and you know it, eat a snack. If you're angry and you know it, eat a snack. If you're sad because you're angry, feeling down or generally bad. If you're sad, eat a snack. I, I wanted to punch my television screen. Because it's like, you're making fun of this very serious thing. If you're sleepy and you know it. If you're guilty and you know it. If you're stressed, eat a snack. Erica is a certified nutritionist and a personal trainer. She runs a website called A Black Girl's Guide to Weight Loss, and she's thought a lot about the complicated relationship people have with food, which is why she didn't think this ad was funny. People don't always understand what it is that's happening when they feel like crying and instead they eat. They don't understand that. And you're mocking it in a commercial with a children's song. Like, that's a serious matter. And you think that that's, like, not only do you think it's something to mock in a commercial, but it's, your, it's a profit opportunity for you. And there's something that just kind of feels unethical and really just gross about that. For nearly six decades, Weight Watchers has convinced millions of people it can help them lose weight. Unlike other diets that tell you exactly what you can and can't eat, Weight Watchers tells you you can eat whatever you like, as long as you stay within the boundaries of their point system. It looks at your height, weight, gender, and weight loss goal, and it says this number. That's how many points you should eat in a day. You can eat and drink as many zero-point items as you like. That means pretty much unlimited apples and celery and cups of black coffee. But you have to budget for everything else. If you want a packet of sugar in that coffee, add a point. If you want the sugar and a splash of milk, add two points. If you want to eat a Big Mac alongside it at 17 points, well, that's most of your allotment for the day. And if you want to talk about why you keep ordering Big Macs and blowing through your allowance of points, there are Weight Watchers franchises in cities around the world where you can weigh in, commiserate, and share recipes and tips with other dieters. Or at least you could before the pandemic. Now they've gone online. The science behind all the points and numbers has changed a lot over the years. The point system didn't even exist when Weight Watchers was founded. But this company has sold its signature combination of flexibility, promised success, and built-in community really well. Weight Watchers was always just kind of this aspirational thing, right? Because I was always a plus-size kid. And it was Weight Watchers, Slim Fast, Jenny Craig. Like, those were the three. About two years ago, Erica saw another ad for Weight Watchers. And this one she did think was funny. I was on Twitter and I laughed so loud and so hard my teenage daughter came into the room and was like, okay, if it's that funny, like, you need to tell me. What Erica had just seen was an ad announcing that Weight Watchers wasn't going to be called Weight Watchers anymore. Weight Watchers is now WW. Join at WW.com today. 
Weight Watchers was moving away from the thing that, until then, it seemed like the company was all about, which was dieting. From now on, it would be known as WW, two letters attached to the tagline, Wellness That Works. But Erica Nicole Kendall wasn't convinced. When I saw the ad and I saw the logo and it just kind of completely eliminates the word weight altogether. It's like, did you think that that was going to mean that we weren't going to realize that the WW still stands for Weight Watchers? You thought that removing the word weight was just going to be like this mind-blowing thing for all of us and we were just going to feel differently about this brand? No, no, it's still the same thing. But my second thought was, finally, the body acceptance movement got a win. For decades, Weight Watchers has sold a solution to a problem. It was a set of guidelines that promised to help its members lose weight. And it worked for generations of subscribers who paid their dues, kept their food diaries, and weighed in at weekly meetings. And it also worked for the company's bottom line. But it's 2021 now. The whole idea of dieting and losing weight is increasingly seen as unhealthy and sometimes misogynistic and really just uncool. The cult of thinness hasn't disappeared, but the body positivity movement has begun to chip away at it. And so WW, a company built to monetize that desire to shrink your physical self by restricting your caloric intake, has had to make a few adjustments. The climate is changing. The culture for women is changing. The space for women to be comfortable with themselves is changing. And if you want to continue to pick up consumers, you have to change. Will WW's new branding be enough to satisfy both its critics and its investors? In 2021, is a diet company's best chance at survival to swear that it's really not that interested in dieting after all, and that it just wants you to be healthy? Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. I'm Jess Miller, filling in for Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, Loss Leader, WW International. When did Weight Watchers like enter your consciousness? Like when did you first become aware of this thing? I mean, it probably entered my consciousness in the womb. Marissa Meltzer's parents were lifelong dieters. They inducted Marissa into their club at an early age. When she was eight years old, they signed her up for Weight Watchers. And my mom went on it at the same time because uh, mother-daughter <laughs> dieting was, was totally okay in the 80s. And I went to one Weight Watchers location in a strip mall in Santa Cruz, California, where I grew up. Marissa remembers a room full of adults, mostly middle-aged, mostly women, sharing tips about crystal light and other calorie savers. What she remembers most, though, was the ritual they all undertook at the start of the meeting, stepping on a scale in front of a complete stranger. From my memory, I don't think we went to a lot of them, but it was about the accountability of getting weighed in every week and the potential shame. Marissa just wrote a book called This Is Big, about her lifetime of struggle with weight loss and body image. It's also about a woman she never met, 
but whose shadow hung over her entire life, Jean Neidich, the founder of Weight Watchers. She was a sort of a sparkly, compelling character. She bleached her hair and wore it in a bouffant and wore very like stylish, sort of like, seemed to be a lot of marabou feathers in her wardrobe, a lot of sort of poochy looks. And so, you know, she was kind of like a great mascot and spokesperson. Most of the time when I read an article about her, there's a picture of her holding a piece of cake with like her big blonde hair. <laughs> yeah. She was definitely not eating that cake. I'll tell you that. She was fond of saying that on your birthday, you should serve everyone cake and then you should have some cantaloupe, which is sort of like the saddest thing I've ever heard. Jean Neidich's origin story begins in the outer boroughs of New York City. She was born in Brooklyn and living in Little Neck, Queens. She was married with two kids and had worked as a clerk for the IRS. Her husband, Marty, was an airport bus driver. They'd moved around a bit as a young family before settling back in New York. And then came the day that changed her entire life. And I remember the day vividly. It was October, 1961. I woke up that morning and I was having a thin day. <laughs> you know, you can wait till 14 and you can have a thin day. It was a story she'd repeat many times over the course of her life, as you hear her doing here. Jean ran into an acquaintance at the supermarket. And she said, Jean, you look so wonderful. And I thought, she's noticing, I'm thin. And then she said, when are you due? Jean wasn't pregnant. By this time, she'd already been on just about every crash diet there was. She'd taken pills, she'd tried hypnosis, she'd tried weird oils, but none of these programs were enough to overcome Jean's love of Malamars, those s'more-like cookies sold in boxes that she would hide in her bathroom hamper and eat by the sleeve at night. Being mistaken for pregnant at the grocery store was embarrassing enough for Jean that she was determined to try and lose weight again. This time, she checked into an obesity clinic run by the New York City Department of Health, where she was put on a strict but reasonable regimen of foods, Lots of lean stuff, like fish, fruits, and vegetables. No sweets or fats. Still, the Malamars called. Here's Marissa Meltzer again. What happened was she had all of these sort of girlfriends. She lived in this big development uh, deep in Queens. And her friends would get together to like play mahjong every week. And she would tell them her sort of like diet progress and secrets. And then they all started to kind of do their own diet based on the diet she was on. And they'd come every week and more and more people would join until they started having proper meetings. These meetings were crucial to Jean's personal weight loss goals. It gave her a support network. She found out other people hid cookies in their laundry baskets too, and they talked about it. They talked about all of their setbacks and celebrated together when they reached their dieting milestones. One year after her famous confrontation at the grocery store, Jean had lost over 70 pounds, and she had a new idea for a business. If this combination of a strict diet and group meetings had worked for her, it could work for other people too. In 1963, she, her husband, and two friends who had been part of the groups launched a company they called Weight Watchers. It had a meal plan that was similar to the one at Jean's Manhattan Clinic. The point system wasn't introduced until way later. 
You couldn't have ketchup. You couldn't drink alcohol. You could have two hot dogs a day though. So that was nice. And then there was a lot of, you know, artificial flavoring, artificial sweetener, just so much gelatin. And there was a lot of like mock recipes like that are just downright troubling, like a fake guacamole that involves, I think, green beans that are frozen and pureed. So yeah, it was a pretty strict diet, which is probably why it worked. The idea of losing weight by eating foods with fewer calories wasn't exactly new. But what was new, the Weight Watchers innovation, were the meetings. Here was a diet plan that acknowledged that overeating is linked to emotion. And that the solution had to address the emotion too. Everyone in the program kept a diary of goals, and for a $3 attendance fee, they could go to weekly meetings for accountability and camaraderie. This was a time when Alcoholics Anonymous was kind of catching off fairly fairly new, and so there was a little bit of that sort of shared strength in your stories and you know your weaknesses. And then, you know, sharing tips and tricks and recipes. There are a lot of anecdotes about people trying to understand what they called their Frankenstein, which was like their sort of bete noir in food form, like their kind of downfall. Soon, Weight Watchers franchises were popping up all over New York and then all over the world. By 1968, five years after incorporating, Weight Watchers had 5 million people in this program. The company went public. It expanded with Weight Watchers magazines, retreats, and books. In 1973, 17,000 Weight Watchers devotees flooded Madison Square Garden for a 10-year anniversary extravaganza. Gene Neidich was a millionaire and a celebrity. She did things like audition for like pilots for sitcoms and I think there was even some sort of like talk of a chat show, but she also went on like cruises around the world and loved visiting far-flung worldwide Weight Watchers locations in, you know, Australia and Europe and stuff like that. It seems like she really lived to sort of meet her fans and people who had lost weight on Weight Watchers. The success changed her life dramatically. She and Marty divorced. She moved to LA. She dated Fred Astaire. She went on a cruise with one man and came back married to another, someone from the ship's band. She was a very heavy gambler. I consider it sort of replacing one predilection or sort of source of, I don't know, release for another. And she spent a lot of time in Atlantic City and Las Vegas playing poker and eventually lived in a senior complex in Florida and, you know, was that woman who founded Weight Watchers until she died. She died in 2015. But by then, the thing that Weight Watchers was selling was pretty far from her original vision. In 1978, it was bought by the Heinz Corporation for $71.2 million. The weight loss industry was increasingly offering packaged diet food products. Heinz would introduce pre-portioned frozen meals with the Weight Watchers seal of approval on them later. 
I think when Heinz bought Weight Watchers, you know, there was synergy between the sort of packaged goods that Heinz manufactured and and the audience and the kinds of things that Weight Watchers sold. And so, you know, there were things that you could start having, you could definitely start having ketchup by then. Weight Watchers continued to shift with the times, refining both its business strategy and its diet plan. The 80s came and, you know, you could have alcohol on Weight Watchers. And then the company made its biggest move yet and introduced the point system and started telling people they could eat what they wanted as long as they stayed within their point tallies. And you just had to keep track of your allotted points for the day, which is This incredibly Byzantine calculation that involved like calories and fat minus fiber and in the days before like apps, um, you had to like have this weird calculator that you like bought and manipulated and tried to figure out how many points were in everything. So you could have everything, but you certainly had to spend like half of your day figuring out the value of what you were, what you were consuming. In 1999, Heinz sold Weight Watchers to the private equity firm Arta Luxembourg for $735 million. At the helm of the sale was investment mogul Raymond DeBain, who ended up taking the company public again in 2001. But the biggest changes and challenges were yet to come. Nothing tastes as good as thin feels. Like, have you had a burger? Like a good burger? Like, what do you mean? Nothing, y'all just don't like food. More on that after the break. I have never been done Weight Watchers myself. Um, I had some college roommates that were always doing it. So I sort of knew the point counting concept from like them, you know, this was in college um, saying, you know, well, I'm just not eating all day so we can drink when we go out Friday night because I have to save my points for booze. Virginia Soulsmith is a contributor to the New York Times parenting section, where she writes a column on food, weight, and body image. She started out her writing career at teen and women's magazines, which meant she wrote a lot of dieting stories. She says she had to do a bunch of mental gymnastics just to feel okay with the work she was doing. Like just, you know, diet culture 101 talk of like, this one isn't a diet, it's a lifestyle plan. And this one is, you know, this one's just about portion control and that's fine and all of these things. Um, But just sort of increasingly feeling like this does not add up to a message that feels helpful to people, mostly because our readers were never, you know, finding magical unicorn thinness, they were still struggling. Like Virginia, a lot of people were getting tired of diet culture. They were realizing that skipping meals so you'd have some points left over for beer pong might help make you thin, but it certainly wouldn't make you healthy. A new way of thinking about food was becoming mainstream, one that focused on eating unprocessed foods and buying from local farmers. Here's the writer Michael Pollan in a 2015 PBS documentary. And everything I've learned about healthy eating can be summed up in just seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Organic food was getting really trendy, farmer's markets, like there was this whole culture solidifying around wellness. To people who had spent their lives dieting, 
so-called clean eating, looked a lot better than what they'd been putting their bodies through. And, you know, that was a very seductive idea because people were sick of the massive counting points and counting galleries. So you had this, what started as an environmental justice movement now become a public health movement, but really about making ourselves thin. Weight Watchers really suffered in these years as wellness culture started to take shape. By the fall of 2015, the company had reported 10 straight quarters of declining sales. They knew they had to pivot. If only there were something or someone who could change the messaging. Someone who could convey that putting yourself on a diet was at its core about looking and feeling your best. It was really about loving yourself. Oprah, period, exclamation point. This is the joy for me. I love bread. I love bread. Towards the end of 2015, Oprah Winfrey bought a 10% stake in Weight Watchers for $43 million. She also became its spokesperson. That's the genius of this program. I lost 26 pounds and I have eaten bread every single day. She uses body positivity rhetoric all the time when she justifies her involvement with Weight Watchers and her involvement in the diet industry in general. She always filters it through the language of self-love and being your best self. And, you know, she's saying to you, I'm amazing, but I could be more amazing if I was thinner. Oprah was Weight Watchers' savior. After years of declining sales and share prices, membership finally grew. Around that time, the company unveiled a program called Beyond the Scale with more holistic messaging and methods rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy that seemed more on trend. But no matter what it sold, no matter what hoops it jumped through to convince people that it wasn't still hyper-focused on body size, Weight Watchers was still saddled to the word weight. And Mindy Grossman, the president and CEO of Weight Watchers is here. And as we've said, there is a big grand announcement. I know my mom's interested in this too. So what do you have for us, Mindy? Well, good morning. And what we're really excited about is the global leader in weight management around the world, Weight Watchers, Uh is moving to WW to be the global mark of wellness for everyone You're changing beyond the name. just weight. Changing the name, for sure. To the mark of WW, W-W. absolutely. In 2018, Weight Watchers' new CEO, Mindy Grossman, formerly of the Home Shopping Network and close friend of Oprah Winfrey, went on the Today Show and announced that her company was henceforth to be known as WW. The company said those two letters honored the legacy of Weight Watchers, but didn't really stand for anything in particular. Virginia Soul Smith didn't buy it. I think I laughed out loud um, because it felt like such an obvious move, but also such a kind of a desperate move in a way. I mean, it was both very smart of Weight Watchers to say, oh, let's brand as a wellness plan because that's what people really want. And it gets us away from this whole weight loss thing that's gotten so controversial. But it was also impossible. You can't drop weight from Weight Watchers. It's WW. Nobody, everybody who writes about it, whenever I report on it, we say WW, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers, because they're never going to lose that from the brand. By the way, this was also around the time when Dunkin' Donuts became just Dunkin'. It didn't stop selling the donuts. It just didn't want them so front and center. 
And that's what WW, formerly Weight Watchers, was doing here too. It was still a diet, but with some extra wellness bells and whistles. Despite skepticism, the rebranding was initially a success. 2018 brought a rally in stock prices and substantial subscriber growth. But by the following year, everything plummeted back to earth. And in 2020, there was more bad luck, exacerbated by the pandemic. There were many canceled memberships, and the company announced it had to cut costs. By late spring, there were reports of mass firings over Zoom. And in terms of its wellness offerings, WW has thrown almost everything at the wall. It's partnered with Headspace, the mindfulness meditation app. Some versions of its current plan have significantly expanded its list of zero-point foods to include things like lean proteins and even whole grains. Its app offers on-demand fitness classes. It recently launched what it calls its most holistic program ever, the new MyWW+, which promises to help users, yes, with their weight, but also with their physical activity, mental health, and sleep. And it's tried to speak directly to the pandemic by offering an online community of coaches and fellow members online. But it's also done some things that contradict this holistic caring image. For instance, it still requires periodic weigh-ins. And if you don't own a scale, it'll sell you one. The website says, quote, a step on this bathroom scale is a step in the right direction for well-balanced living. With WW Scales by Conair, you can keep track of your wellness journey. End quote. There was also the matter of the controversial Curbo by WW, a color-coded weight loss app designed for dieters aged 8 to 17 in the style of a traffic light system. Oh, it blew up big. There was a very immediate and powerful backlash online from dietitians, from doctors, from parents, from eating disorder advocates, all saying that we do not need to be selling a diet to kids. Virginia Soulsmith says that if you want to see WW's true intentions, you need look no further than Kerbo and its system of green light foods for always okay, yellow light foods for proceed with caution, and red light foods that should be eaten by your child sparingly. They were saying it's not a diet, it's not a diet, it's not a diet, of course, um, it's a lifestyle plan. Nutritionist and writer Erica Nicole Kendall says that this marketing effort has less to do with healthy lifestyles for children and more to do with the anxieties of their moms and dads. They're not targeting children, they're targeting the parents. You know, they're, they're targeting us. We're hearing about heart disease and heart disease is directly linked to obesity and diabetes is directly linked to obesity. And it's like, I, Weight Watchers isn't promising to prevent my child from developing diabetes, promising to not have my child be overweight. You might say that WW dropping the word weight from its name is a sign of something changing for the better. A sign that we're learning to tell the difference between being healthy and being thin. But are we really? Every person in the story, myself included, has experienced a lifetime of really complicated messaging about food and body image. We've inherited it from our families, from the diet ads we saw when we were kids, from the way we've been treated as our bodies have changed at different points in our lives. Some of us were put on diets when we were young before we really understood any of this. And I'm here to tell you, it can really screw you up. Diet culture is not healthy mentally, emotionally for women. And companies like Weight Watchers had participated in perpetuating it. And as long as this confusion exists, 
As long as we still live in a society that prefers people to be thin, whether or not it always says so explicitly, there will still be business for WW. But if the company actually wants to make its customers healthier, it's going to have to do more than change its name. That's our show for today. This episode was produced by me, Asha Saluja, and Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. If you like this show, consider supporting us with a Slate Plus membership. The first month only costs $1, and you'll be able to listen to the show ad-free. Plus, you'll get access to bonus content from the Slate Podcast Network. Sign up now at slate.com slash thrilling plus. Next week on the show, a superhero-fueled comeback story. I mean, I feel like when I was growing up, people used to make fun of people, you know, that were like nerds and, you know, read comic books, and now it's normalized. Now everyone's watching Marvel movies, and it's not something that you're the other. Now if you're not watching it, you're the other. Seth Stevenson will be back then. For now, I'm Jess Miller, and this has been Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism.